Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. God prays for his uh, creation all around us. We also come before him knowing that we have sinned against him. Exodus 23 is our call to worship, to confession this morning. The first three verses. You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. Thus far the reading of God's word. We're going to consider the ninth commandment a bit later. And kids, I want to start with you today. So kids, listen up. One of the worst things you can do in your home is to lie about your brother or sister to get yourself out of trouble. And it's a strong temptation sometimes, right? He did it, not me. I didn't hit her, she hit me, right? And if that's not true, that's called bearing false witness. And it grieves your parents greatly uh, when they get two different stories from the kids and someone is obviously lying. That happens sometimes. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Uh, These verses in Exodus 23 make the same point. Don't believe malicious reports against people without having the facts. Cancel culture is just the newest rendition of this. In our sinful human nature, nature, we love to see the successful taken down, whether it's right or wrong. In a mild form, we are generally curious about the lives of others, which can lead to gossip and speculation. And 1 Timothy 5 warns us against going from house to house as gossips and busybodies, saying what we should not, quote, unquote. So when you have a disagreement with someone, maybe it's political, maybe you see some event very differently, it's very easy to believe the worst about them. And we want to work instead to promote the good name of our neighbor. Not just in court, on the witness stand, but anytime their reputation is questioned and there's no proof. So we, we may not lie to make others look good, but truth is at the foundation of this commandment. Uh, We say recently, live not by lies. But we also don't have to say everything we know or think if it isn't helpful. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. And we return now to our sermon series in the Psalms. Psalm 8 is where we left off. We just sang the psalm a moment ago. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles if you have them. Let's read God's Word once more and consider His creation. Psalm 8, hear God's infallible Word. To the chief musician on the instrument of Gath, a psalm of David. 
O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this word of God stands forever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, this is the second part in the series that I'm considering. What are the things that Christians believe? And if you haven't caught on yet, I've been building this as a biblical worldview series. Uh, It's really a systematic theology. So if you're into systematic theology, you're a little bit geeked about this and maybe caught on already. But that's what's going on here. God, last week, uh, his being, uh, and now we look at what God does. And that takes up all the rest of the Uh, series. So we have creation, first of all. Let's pray before we continue. Lord God, we give you thanks that you are our creator. And we ask that your word, this word that we have read, would be our rule, that your spirit would be our teacher, and that the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, would be our single concern. We pray in his name. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first words of Scripture. Genesis 1 focuses on nature. And you see in the uh, sermon outline, uh, the theme here is that God created all things, visible and invisible. We say that in the Nicene Creed. And he controls what happens in it all, too. So we're going to look at creation and providence today, mainly. So nature first, and then angels and demons, which is something we don't usually consider, but systematic theologians are careful to include that. God created the angels before he made man, it would seem. And so we'll consider them. And then man, mankind, the image of God, and providence. Again, that's a lot. You could take 40 sermons on all of this. So very briefly, Genesis 1, let's focus on nature first. There's a poetic structure to the chapter, to the first chapter of the Bible, where God creates space in air and sea and land, three different uh, areas of creation, stories, some say. It's a three-storied universe. He does that in the first three days, and then in the next three days, God fills those spaces. He fills the heavens with the sun and the moon and the stars. He fills the sea with teeming creatures, the the great sea monsters, etc. So creation has an order and a structure to it. And Genesis 1 is telling us that in that poetry. And we see that too in in the science of our own day. We see from Fibonacci numbers to the harmonics of sound waves. There's, There's an order and a structure to creation. And it is beautiful. 
And, and we're thinking God's thoughts after him as we explore his creation. And it's something valuable for us to do. The dating of creation gets a lot of discussion these days. Uh, Bishop Usher, back in the 1600s, first dated all the genealogies of the Bible and came up with the date of 4004 B.C., about 6,000 years ago. I don't hold dogmatically to the 6,000 years, but there's only so much space you can put into the gaps in the genealogies as people try to make them. Uh, Modern science says the world is 15 billion years old or something based on how far away the stars are and the light that would take that long to get here. I think that's bad reasoning. Uh, God made Adam, and on day one, Adam looked more like 30 years old than three days old. And it's the same, I think, with the mountains and with the stars. Uh, That's not deceptive on God's part. The day after the flood of Noah, there, there, there were canyons and rivers that looked like they had eroded to that state over millions of years. Uh, but if you assume a steady, uniform erosion and rule out a flood, then yeah, you're going to wind up with millions of years. But when Mount St. Helens erupted, the work of a day looked like it took millions of years by modern science's uniformitarian assumptions, as they're called. So no, I'll believe the Bible in my eyes over the word of science on this one. Exodus 20 says it right in the middle of the Ten Commandments. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. So yes, six days in creation. Our Westminster Confession of Faith even says that, in the space of six days. Our week is built around this, God says. God worked for six days, and he rested for one. And so should we. So when we consider creation and Genesis 1, we can see the poetry in Genesis 1, the structure of that. That's, that's good, and that's beautiful. But it's also historical fact. Evening and the morning were the first day, second day, etc. So this is uh, the, the creation of nature. From Psalm 8, we learn that God's glory is shown in his creation. His name is majestic in the earth, the psalm begins and ends with. The heavens are the work of his fingers, verse 3. I love that poetry. The the psalmist often gives us a, a kind of picturesque view of God as creator there. It's almost like he's finger painting, right? And he finger paints the mountains and the seas. And, and that's, that's how great God is. He can just finger paint. And here's these huge things, to, huge to us. He sets the moon and the stars in place. So when we see a redwood or Mount Everest, we're looking at God's art project that he whipped out in six days. <laughs> it's glorious. It's beautiful. But, but it's not just the huge and the awesome. Uh, verse 2, notice. Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. A baby's cry shows his wonders. We hear that here every Sunday morning. Some baby's crying. And it's a glorious thing. Uh, when When a child is in the womb for nine months, hidden and growing in silence, and then all of a sudden at birth, this this noise that's more wondrous and joyful than any tyrant's army or power. That's what this psalm is getting at. 
It's beautiful. It's glorious. God's work is shown in his creation, especially at the birth of little ones. Uh, I'll also note briefly that all of creation was declared by God to be good. And the physical creation itself is not some inferior or lesser or evil thing. Uh, Some of the Greeks took that road, that the spiritual realm is better, that the physical world is tainted, that we need to fly away from physical creation to be really blessed. Uh, And I've noticed that. I I use the phrase fly away there on purpose. There's that old hymn, right? I'll fly away, right? We, We have this longing to fly away from this physical life and be free of all this suffering and pain and whatever it brings. And I've noticed that Christians who are older or Christians who have suffered more physically, they're prone to sing such songs and to be, and to cling to that hope. I'll fly away. Get me out of this body. Get me out of this veil of tears is often our longing. And we forget that God is redeeming us to a resurrection of the body where there is no cancer, there's no death, there's no searing pain. It's hard to imagine often, but it's real. And and so before creation, uh, there's no no evil force that's equal to God. That's the whole dualism Star Wars thing, right? There's not this uh, dark side that that is equally opposing the, the, the light. No, that's, that's not the case. So that leads to the next point on the angels and demons, right? The Nicene Creed says this, God is the creator of all things, visible and invisible. So we've thought, we've thought about the visible. Now let's think about the invisible things that God has made. And I didn't have this in my notes, but this would also include things like the laws of mathematics, <laughs> gravity, right? Things like that are invisible There are a lot of invisible things that God has made. But I want to focus on the angels in this moment. Ephesians 6 says it. We read this. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against cosmic powers over this present darkness, the English Standard Version says. The Bible never talks directly about their creation, which is interesting. If you want to look up later today, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 I think we can infer some things from there, that the angelic fall came before man's fall, right? God made Lucifer. He was a good and powerful angel. But Lucifer, in time, wanted to supplant God and be the Most High himself. We see that in Isaiah 14, verse 11 and onwards. That's the satanic root. Wherever evil is found, that's the root. You want to supplant God and be God yourself, right? You want to assert yourself and your rights instead of submit to God most high. You decide your sexual identity, not the body that you were given. You choose to abort the baby inside of you. You choose to be happy by breaking up your marriage. You decide as a civilization that you're going to oppress and enslave a whole other people. You assert your power to make sure that you are not a victim of anyone else. That's a description of the satanic root. So that spirit rebels against God 
and there's war in heaven. Revelation 12. Even before the world was made, Satan is cast down. Jesus sees Satan fall like lightning. He falls to Sheol, and and then he comes to earth to ruin that too. And so we have this infamous encounter in the garden in Genesis 3. And our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against our adversary there. He's perfectly willing to use our flesh against us, and he does. But that isn't the main battlefront for us. The point isn't to deny ourselves certain physical things and then we'll be okay. No, it's that we need to trust what God says, and we need to do his will. So the angels participate in kingdom warfare And now I'm borrowing a bit from John Frame. He wrote an excellent systematic theology, one of those really thick, fat books, like about that, thick. But he's got a great chapter on angels and demons. The angels participate in kingdom warfare. Uh, Only two angels are are ever named in the Bible. Michael is a warrior angel. Gabriel is a messenger angel. It's interesting that both are mentioned in Daniel 9 and 10. Uh, And... Uh, on kingdom warfare, on on how that fits with our daily temptations, uh, I would commend to you C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. It's very good on this. Uh, And it it shows how this um, angelic warfare that we know little about intersects with our daily mundane temptations. Uh, John Frame says it like this. He says, The news media and the commentators seem to think that the most important issues are political. But Scripture says otherwise. The really decisive issues of life are ethical and spiritual. And that's part of the angelic kingdom warfare. Uh, Frame also says that God chose to save human weaklings rather than mighty angels. And that's something interesting to consider. We see that in Scripture, that the, the, the things of salvation that we've experienced, the angels long to look into those things because they haven't experienced salvation. And God has chosen not to redeem or to save any of the rebel angels. But he has chosen to save human weaklings, as Frame puts it. Relative to the angels, we are. So that leads us to the next point on man. Uh, We are made a little lower than the angels, Psalm 8 says. Back to Psalm 8, verse, what verse is that in? Verse 5. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. Now generally, when we think lower than the angels, that's what we think. Angels are more powerful. They're more awesome than mankind. And that's right. Uh, There's another way to consider it. Uh, I think I've um, gleaned most of this from Jim Jordan. He says that Adam was meant to guard the garden, but he failed, right? So so the angels were put at the gate of the garden to guard the garden for us and to guard the garden from us, right? We failed, and, and so we were put under, put into the guardianship of the angels, But when Christ came, Christ was exalted above every name named, right? Every name named, including all any angels like Michael or Gabriel. And we were seated with Christ in the heavenlies, right? Humanity was restored to its position above the angels, closer to God than the angels, 
right? The lamb in Revelation 5 is a good example of that. The, the lamb is, is next to the throne. And then outside of the throne and the lamb, there are the living creatures. And there's the 24 elders. There's the, the, the other angels. But we're seated with Christ. We're in Christ, who is the slain lamb. We're that close to the throne. Closer than the angels is the point. So, uh, some speculate that this is why Satan fell, and I thought it at least worthy of mention, uh, that Satan could not stand God's plan to put these puny weaklings above him in the grand plan. What? Is that what you're going to do, God? Really? And it seems like a third of the angels rebel with him. So consider there that Satan is a master of dissension. Dissension. He is a master at getting others to resent and to envy God or his people. And you see that in, in all the culture wars throughout time. You should be offended by what God did. Right? This is what we see in Genesis 3 uh, when God comes to Adam and Eve. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree of the garden? The whole point there is to create dissension between creator and creature. You should be offended by what God did. You should reject God because of the abuses that his church commits. We see that today a lot, right? It's in the news all the time, how awful the church is. And, and sometimes the church is awful. Sometimes God's people, leaders in the church, do make mistakes and egregious ones. But watch out for the opportunist who wants to divide God's people and to use that for his own agenda. So, man is made a little lower than the angels. Man is crowned with glory and honor. The second half of verse 5. The structure of Genesis 1 is quite clear. That mankind, and this is so politically incorrect to say these days, but I, I'm just going to go, this is what the Bible tells us. It's clear that mankind is the climax of God's creation. The highest point of it. Right? You've got three days of space making, and then three days of space filling, and at the end of that, the last thing made is man. And God then doesn't just say, let's make this, let's do this. Then he says to himself, let us make man in our own image. It's a very unique, very different thing God does. Only man in all of creation bears the image of God with a unique capacity in our soul to commune with God. And the unbelieving world sees things very differently. They, they see people as another species of animal, or they see man as a cancer that is harming the planet, uh, whatever it is. Uh, that's part of the big lie of Darwin these days. But God put us here for a purpose. He put you here for a purpose. So, we're made in the image of God, male and female, uh, Genesis 1 says. And these days in our culture, we're celebrating the mangling of God's creation, right? Babies ripped apart in the womb, men acting as women, women as men. Uh, I don't know if I've mentioned it much before, but the CREC put out a statement a couple of years ago about this, uh, and it's really good. I'll pass that on to you this week as I re remember it. Uh, a statement on God being made in the image of uh, man being made in the image of God, male and female. 
So that's something important to keep in mind. Well, continuing on in Psalm 8, after verse 5, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands, verse 6. And we see that in Genesis 1 as well, right? Fill the earth, subdue it, take dominion. Uh, And most of our application will land right here today. Uh, Part of the doctrine of creation is the importance of work. The the importance of work, and, and you can apply this in every area of life. God has given you dishes to eat from, so be willing to wash the dishes. <laughs> That's part of taking dominion, right? God has given you children to nurture. Be willing to wash them <laughs> and to teach them. God has given you skills. Be willing to use them, not just for your own entertainment, but for the service of others, And as God blesses us with a free market, that's going to lead to provision for you through God's invisible hand, as some have written about it. Teach your children to work hard with their hands, to produce good for those around them. Teach them how to do that. That's important. Take dominion of your bodies. That's another aspect of creation. Eat well, keep it fit. I know I'm one to talk, but we want to do that. C.S. Lewis talks about um, our bodies as a steady, sturdy beast of burden. And we need to consider our bodies rightly. Don't pamper it. Don't self-indulge it. Don't focus too much on how strong it can be. 1 Timothy 4, 8 is important. It's quite direct about that. It says, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. It holds promise for the present life and the life to come. So uh, our bodies are important. Uh, We want to use our body well, and we need to steward everything that we're given by God. And we see that in the rest of the psalm, Psalm 8. Uh, You made man to have dominion over the works of your hands, verse 6. You've put all things under his feet, and then it gives us a bit of a list. The, The sheep, the oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, all things that pass through the paths of the sea. It's almost a list very similar to Genesis chapter 1. So all things in creation we were given to steward. And that includes uh, our bodies as well. Uh, modern people, uh, and that includes all of us, I think, t- today, we have an infatuation with our bodies. And we often neglect our souls instead. That different cultures and generations emphasize different ones. In the past... Uh, generations of the church have been overly pietistic, uh, emphasizing their souls to the neglect of their bodies. Today, I almost think it's the other way around. We're so focused on any and every last speck of anything that goes into our bodies, but what goes into our soul, we're a little bit less discerning and careful about sometimes. Anyway, we need to take dominion of all things. Uh, That's uh, Psalm 8. Uh, Finally, on providence, and I'll close here. Uh, Along with God creating everything, uh, God also sustains and he directs it all, right? We think here of the decrees of God, what God decides is going to happen in his creation. If you, I like to say it this way, if you see that it happened on the news and you can be sure that it happened, then you can be sure that God ordained it. If it happened, God ordained it. God is not sitting back watching his world run on autopilot 
just kind of observing, thinking, oh, that's interesting that they did that. Wow, wouldn't have thought of that. <laughs> that's, that's not how God is operating his world. Every atom, every molecule is right where he wants it to be. And that's important to consider with the problem of evil. We'll look into that uh, later on. But Amos 3 puts it this way. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? You know, whether it's good things or bad things, neutral things, whatever it is that happens, isn't it God who made it happen? And that's true. So the decrees of God bring that about. You want to be careful there not to say that God is the author of evil. That's an important qualification. But God does uh, bring to pass whatever he uh, desires. So decrees of God, that also relates to us as God's people, as, as those who are saved. Uh, we, and there we talk about predestination, right? In Ephesians 1, 4, we see that clearly. Before the foundation of the world, God chose us in Christ. God picked you to be his saved, his loved child. So that your whole life, your struggles, your hurts, your guilt, what you take joy in, all of it, God knows. And he loves you. It's not just a cold, you know, arranging of the chess pieces on the board. It's a, I'm sustaining you and your life and I love you and all that you are. That's what God has done for us as he's predestined us to save us, to atone for our sins. Uh, last thing I'm going to close with today, this might seem like a strange place to close, but the, along with the doctrine of providence comes the idea of concurrence. I don't know if you've heard of that word much before. It's, I think it's mentioned in the Westminster Confession. Concurrence which is basically a philosophical term that means two things happening at once, right, concurrently. So the two things that are going on is, one, God is working out his will. He's ordaining all things that come to pass. But also something else that's going on is that we are responsible moral agents who are making decisions and choices, and we're deciding what we want to do in our lives, right? And somehow, in God's mystery, both of those are true. We are responsible moral agents. And I want to give three examples, and I'll close with these. One example from the beginning of the Bible is Joseph, right? When Joseph is taken down to Egypt, sold as a slave, his brothers meant it for evil, Genesis 50, 20 says. But God meant it for good. Joseph tells his brothers that later. They're looking to get rid of him. They're looking to kill him. They're, they're acting as immoral agents in that moment. But God, at the same time, is using that, ordaining through that, to do something else, something deeper. And that's to save Israel, to bring them down to Egypt so they won't starve in, in the promised land. So that's one example of concurrence. A second one in the middle of the Bible is Cyrus. When God decides to punish his people and send them into exile, he raises up Cyrus, his servant, he says in Isaiah 44-ish. Cyrus just wanted to conquer Israel, right? He was the, the, the emperor of the Babylonian uh, Assyrian Empire. 
He just wanted to conquer a bunch of nations and spread his empire. That's what he was after. But Isaiah specifically says that he's just carrying out God's will. He, he thinks he's the one wielding the axe, but Cyrus is just the axe being wielded by God, Isaiah basically says. So you have there the idea of concurrence. God is doing something. So we can see that today, too, before I go on to the last example. We can see that today in current events. We, we see and we're frustrated by all these various actors who are doing nefarious things in our culture. And we think, ah, we need to realize concurrence is still going on. God is doing something in that. Maybe, he may be judging our culture. That may be a negative thing. He, or he may be teaching the church and helping us to grow. Uh, God is doing something there. The last example, of course, is Jesus on the cross. This is the greatest act of concurrence. The Sanhedrin, the leaders of Israel, seek to put Jesus to death, to get rid of him so that they can maintain their power. It's the greatest act of evil in the world, to reject God's son in that moment, in that way, to kill the heir so they can keep the kingdom themselves. But God uses that great act of evil for good. That's what providence is all about. Whatever great evil you hear or see around you, realize God is greater. Uh, what's the phrase we sang in This is My Father's World? God is the ruler yet. Um, however uh, strong the wrong appears, God is the ruler yet. So creation and providence come together there. All things were made through Jesus, Colossians 1 says. And it also says that all things were made for Jesus, right? So it makes sense that the Son of God is also the one that all redemption comes through. It's amazing. Everything was made through Jesus and for him, and so he's the one who goes to the cross and redeems all that he wants redeemed and restores it all. It's glorious. When God says, let there be light, the word that he spoke was Jesus Christ. So see it with a Jesus lens as we look at that sermon theme one last time. God created all things, visible and invisible, and God controls what happens in it all. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, we give you thanks that you have blessed us with revealing us to us your word. We thank you for this psalm for showing us your glory, uh, for giving us this creation to enjoy, uh, to flourish within. We thank you that you have uh, given us uh, the moon and the stars, the heavens, uh, the mountains, the seas, all things, to see your greatness, your handiwork. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us to redouble our efforts uh, to be good stewards of your creation, to take dominion, uh, to work hard in our callings, uh, to, to multiply, uh, to subdue and fill the earth, uh, to cause the garden that you've given to us to grow and to flourish. We thank you for all of this, for uh, making it possible as you've restored us in Christ. We pray in his name. Sing a 
gods he taught us to pray. Our communion exhortation is from Colossians 1. I mentioned it towards the end of the message. Colossians 1.15, speaking of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through, his, through the blood of his cross. Thus far the reading of God's word. We eat and drink here at the Lord's table, and in the Lord all things hold together. If you have ever had uh, medical or digestive issues, you know how little it takes for our bodies to not work right, right? To, to not hold together as they should. But Jesus brings healing and wholeness in body and in soul. He can because he made everything in the first place, right? Jesus isn't just the great physician who can figure out what's wrong and give us the right medicine. He's the designer, He's the builder of our bodies and our souls. He knows exactly what we need to hum along nicely as we're made to do. I would encourage you to, to try to find that sweet spot in the Lord, doing what he made you to do. We often don't feel like we're there. So talk with your parents or your mentors or your pastor about that. God sometimes keeps us from the sweet spot for a while, but he's holding you together in Christ as we commune with him here. So come, for all things are now ready. The body of Christ broken for you. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.